On this edition of The Co-op, I sat down with Peter Clayton, the owner and operator of the Connecticut Bartenders Academy. And we got the chance to talk about his journey into business ownership and a few of the lessons he's learned over time. So check it out. Enjoy. Peter Clayton in the house, Bartenders Academy. We're just going to jump right into it, man. Let's do I, it. I, uh, just going to start. We're going to just want to timestamp this joint. I All wrote right. Down, I wrote down a few things that happened this week. Oh, okay. <laughs> it seems like every week in 2017 has been quite. <laughs> I'm going to just start off by saying Trigger Finger Trump. Okay. Just fired off on FBI Director Comey. Okay. You're okay. fired. Okay. Uh-huh. That happened this week. It sure did. LeVar Ball launched a $495 sneaker in, the, in his son's name, Alonzo, Alonzo Ball. You know this kid? You know this? I don't know much. I haven't, I haven't seen this guy play, his kid play. Okay. But he's yet to be drafted. He's a high prospect. And they have their own apparel company. Okay. They launched a shoe this week for $495. All right, man. Thoughts? On that specific, so I'll say this. So, um, the, the caveat here is I'm not. I heard something about a really expensive shoe coming out for for a recent athlete that that did cross my radar. Um, I'm not the biggest sports head, but but that did cross my radar. So so what are my thoughts on an almost five hundred dollar sneaker coming out? Um, so without too many details on that particular situation, uh, my first thought is who's the target audience? Who's going to be buying these shoes, right? Okay. So, if the target audience are people who come from communities uh, that have been historically disenfranchised, I have some definite thoughts on that. If it's if the if the target audience are people who are a bit more affluent, mm-hmm. all right, cool, so be it. Um, and then from the perspective of someone selling a four hundred ninety-five dollar shoe. If you can sell it <laughs> and people buy it, right. I applaud your hustle. Right. It, it, it do, he only needs a few, right? If you only need a couple thousand to go. Hey, and it's, it's people, and I've said, it's people out there that's going to buy the sneakers just to say that they bought it. Yeah. I went to school with a couple kids like this. Okay. I, said, I went to a prep school for my, my junior and senior high, uh, year in high school. All right. And I remember, I remember, I, I was thinking about this too. I remember walking down to football practice in the fall, it was a like cloudy day. It was raining. It was muddy. And I remember seeing this hologram, like flash at me outside of my peripheral. We all walking towards the practice field. This kid had worn the Jordan Thirteens to practice. These, I mean, these were the Jordan, the brand new. <laughs> they practice. They might have came out that like the, that weekend, you know, and he's wearing them to practice in the mud. Not a basketball practice, but a football practice. Brand new Jordans. Brand new. So, so that that's immediately what I thought about when I when I I'm like, all right, the people that we know not gonna buy that sneaker for a number of reasons, but somebody gonna buy that sneaker. And I was thinking too, and these kids are the type of kids that will buy ten pairs of sneakers. As a joke, 
as a prank to something. It's like I went to kids. I went to school with kids that would buy like ten pairs of these and just send them to another kid's dorm room as a joke. As a joke. As a joke. And these kids had me- the means to do this. Right. Okay. Right. These okay. kids had the means to do it. So, so I automatically thought that who his market is going to be. It's going to be people from overseas who have money to burn. People that we don't come into contact with every day. But he's going to, I, I think it's a great idea. And again, if somebody's going to buy it, then do your thing. Now, I, I, I have a different feeling about the way he goes about it. But I just wanted to bring that up because that's something that happened this week. This is a week that my my biggest challenge, like again, if if the market, the supply and demand. So if 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 you got the supply and there's a demand, you know, go be it. But you know, for so I just had a son, and this this young guy. I've said this very often in 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 during the course of the past year and a half, um, when he when he was in the oven and then when he came out. Is that th- this this young man is teaching me more about life than I'm teaching him at this point, right? He's, he's ten he's ten months. He's about to be eleven months old, and everything I see in life now is like a lesson for me, yeah. or a lesson for me to teach this young man. And the idea that someone wants to buy a shoe that looks good and it costs a lot of money—that's cool. Everybody do their thing, but to celebrate a to celebrate a shoe because it it's supposed to give you status, that's not the lesson I want to give my son. Right. Right? The lesson in looking at that shoe is if all his friends are getting these shoes or people around him are buying these shoes and he wants these shoes, the, the lesson for it that I want to give to my son is, okay, what's really happening here? What, where are your values at? Are your values to keep up with other folks? Is your values to be flashy? Are your values to say that I have money? Or your values to say, hey, I can start a business and sell these sneakers. See, I think that's I think that's really the point that a lot of people are missing, is, and it's and maybe it's because of my experiences, of learning how to be a better consumer, uh, and being mindful with my money, is that I see the opportunity or the lesson that can be learned in this particular scenario is the business aspect of it because you shouldn't yeah. be looking at how much these sneakers cost you you should be looking at if this man is going to be able to move that product at that price point mm-hmm. because it's not a pretty shoe <laughs> and, <laughs> and and honestly it's 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 a le- he's leveraging in all in all honesty he is a black trump because he's he's selling something based off of a product that isn't proven yet and he's, he's and he and going he's, in already. <laughs> yo, he's creating he's a buzz. Right in. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm tell, no, I mean, but when I because when I think about it, I, I, he he's literally doing the same thing that got Trump elected, which is or or really the way that he's been able to be successful is to sell that something is the greatest thing he's ever sold. It's the greatest thing. He, even even when he's talking about when how uh, how he bombed Syria, he was you know I was having chocolate cake. It was the greatest cake you've ever had. Now, I don't know if he brought the same chef that he has at Trump Towers to the White House, but my guess is probably not, you know? So I'm sure he probably told the chef at Trump Towers that his chocolate cake was the best. But at that moment in time, he knows I need to blow it up as big as I can because it's the only thing that matters right now is that this particular thing that I'm talking about is the best thing that's ever happened. And so, pop a ball, 
has taken a page out of that and said, you know what, we're going to leverage this and say, for one, we're not going to sign with a big shoe company. And number two, we're going to try to do it on our own. And what we're going to do is sell 2,000, maybe let's say maybe the goal is 3,000 units of these shoes for 500 bucks, okay? And this is before he even gets drafted. So now what you're doing is you're creating a buzz. You're already selling units. So you, he's made revenue. And so if the kid flops, if he doesn't get rookie of the year and he flops, then they've made over a million dollars by themselves. But then if he pops, now you're going to have to start talking to him and the units are going to be moving even bigger. So he's hedged his bet like a pro. I'm not mad on the business sense, and I think people need to focus on how he's conducting his business. Because one thing that I have noticed, I haven't followed them uh, very, I haven't followed them much at all. I've seen little snippets here and there. But anytime they're recording, sometimes they'll show home videos at their house. They got a pool. They show a little the, the hoop that was in the driveway that they've been shooting on. So somebody in that family has done something right for as long as extended period of time. And I think people are missing out on, on, on that aspect of it. But I can see why people are pissed off at him. I can see why he's annoying. But I also look at his business sense and him basically knowing the numbers. By saying that four ninety five, if you can't buy it, fine. But somebody's going to buy them because they're four ninety five. Just to put them in a box in a showcase. So, I mean that's that's where I am with, with him. But but yeah, that I just wanted to timestamp that moment. Duh, duh, duh. Uh, and, uh, because that because that's a fascinating storyline between Trump firing his FBI director oh, and Lavar and Lavar Ball <laughs> launching this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, and then the other thing wasn't Comey rocking up here. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, hey, who, man, who knows what he was wearing when he walked out of it? You're fired. Um, the other thing. That, that happened this, this week. It's college time. Kids are graduating. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, mm-hmm. was invited to an HBCU. Yeah. Bethune-Cookman. My, my mother's alma mater. Okay. Shout out Daytona. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. The graduating class booed. Mm-hmm. They turned their backs on her. Mm-hmm. I saw, I looked at a clip today. There was a few fists in the air. Oh, yeah. And, uh, what was the administration thinking? So I, uh, he, I don't know where he wrote this, but the president and um, uh, he had written a statement as to why he chose to continue to have the speaker. And to my knowledge, he may have. Uh, did you see they may have uh, offered his resignation or tendered his resignation? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I, I don't know how you hold that job after that. I think they came across my radar. The issue. So what he laid out, and I thought he initially had some good points, which was you have to be able to welcome dissenting or opposing viewpoints into your circle so you can be better edified, right? But the the problem that I have with that is that in Betsy DeVos coming to um, that audience at Bethune-Cookman, that is not a, that is not a dialogue, Right. That is not an, an equal conversation right, exactly. of, of ideas. No. This was a, um, a, and as are most commencement speeches, commencement speeches are not designed to be dialogue. Right. They're designed to be, you know, words of wisdom to 
the next generations they go on to their next phase of life. And so if he wanted to spark a dialogue, um, I don't think a commencement speech was the right format for that, right? The better format for that would to be have a town hall. Now that would be live and direct with question and answer. Right, that, and that, that I could support. That would have made more sense. Uh, and that would also bolster, have bolstered his point that he wanted to have dissenting views um, on a campus. You know, that's where you get the, the fire of exchange of ideas where those people can be held to question. But to celebrate, um, you know, someone's achievements and to use that celebration of achievements to impart wisdom on the students, there was a huge disconnect there. Yeah, I, I was... I mean, can it's, you even have a huge disconnect? It's just a disconnect, period. This is like... <laughs> I just, I'm just wondering what was on his mind. Like, I... Uh, whose idea was I wonder if it was his idea I hope she didn't get paid you think she got paid um so I try and not I try not to be cynical uh-huh. um but it reminds me of that picture of the HBCU presidents in in the Oval Office in the Oval Office um and the the commentary after that was feeling like they had been duped into a, um, they've been duped into, you know, looking like they were supporting the president. And so this, to me, seems like a way to say that we are doing outreach to the blacks. That's, that's the term he uses, right? The blacks? That's, that's what he calls? I guess. I don't know what he calls. <laughs> that, that, I don't that's know. Trump's phrase. I have no idea what he calls them. I, I don't, did they come in with an agenda when they... You know, Anything? I, I don't know. Last thing I heard, last thing I heard, he was, "What do you have to lose?" And then, Omarosa was like, "What do you have to lose?" <laughs> right. So, and 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 then you know what the the other thing that I thought about when I heard that he, this happened. Black schools already have a challenge with fundraising, mm-hmm. and getting alumni to give back to their schools. Uh-huh. Now, you just enraged a whole graduating class. All right, it's hard to get money from them when they're happy. Now they're pissed off. You're not going to see any money, any, any alumni funds from this class. So that, that, was, that was one of the things that, that passed through my mind. I'm thinking like, man, you're not going to get any money from them. So the, the thing that I am happy to see Right, so looking for a silver lining amongst all the craziness that's happening in this these days, um, I'm hearing from the older generation something that they said about Obama's election. I'm hearing them say it about Trump's presidency and rise to the presidency, uh, which is that when Obama got elected, a lot of the older generation was saying they're seeing young people engaged in ways they never had before. Right. And because they saw Obama's rise and they were like, hey, you know, we have power. We if we push hard enough, we can be successful. We can do this. And now I'm seeing this this I'm I'm, I'm hearing the older generation again say, wow, I'm seeing people get angry like the young people get angry. Um, and the reason why that's important for me or as a, to, to see is that. Um, the worst thing that can happen is someone doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the worst thing that can happen is our, our young people in our generation, generation after us, don't, that's, that's the worst possible scenario. Right. So 
if Obama got them fired up um, and Trump has gotten our generation, generation after us enraged and ready to like to do some serious building. Yeah. Well, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a there's a lot that can be farmed out of that energy as long as it's it's directed, you know, um, and I won't even say directed because a lot of awesome change can happen organically. But as long as it's channeled yeah. in, 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 in constructive um, and effective ways. Yeah. And, and do you think that this generation and millennials get a lot of, they get a lot of hell about being like lazy? Are, are we considered, are we well, all like on we, the we, we, are on, we are on the mesh, we are the mesh point between Gen X and millennials. We're the first right wave. The right in, see, I, I like to, see, I, what I, I describe it as being raised with, with baby boomer principles but with millennials technology. Okay. So we understand how to communicate with our fathers and our grandmothers, but we also understand what the those younger than us understand with the technology yeah. and how it's how things are changing and and what's expected and the disconnect that the senior generation doesn't necessarily get about the younger the generation that's right behind us, I, I should say. Um, it seems to me that the younger kids are more they care more about having an impact more so than we did when we were coming of age. The, um, the, the, the big beautiful thing about this country is that it's so diverse and there's so many people from so many enclaves that you can live in your own little bubble uh, or you can leave your bubble and go to someone else's bubble or you can step back and see a lot. I grew up in, um, I grew up in Queens, New York, went to school in, in Manhattan, um, and the people that I was surrounded with, we kind of had our, our own bubble of, uh, you know, valuing social justice and standing up for what is right. And um, most of my friends that I've, I've met throughout my adult life, uh, they've shared similar experiences, right? And so when I look at this, this current generation now, uh, they have so many more tools to spread information and spread um, what's even more important, which is understanding. So not only pictures or words, but like, and, and articles, but also videos breaking things down, um, becoming content creators of their own. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a power that exists within that. Um, what I see when I look at, you know, our young people now is that they're confronting and, and I, I, I'm trying to look at this in the right way, but from my perspective, I think they're confronting even more so the realities of the American dream not being an actual American dream. And so I think that people of color have always run up against the idea of American dream being a, a, a falsehood yeah. or in some ways um, not for them. Right. Um, and even the enterprising among us have had to use such sheer willpower yeah. to make it and, their dream. Yeah, and how to achieve it. I think they, they've always told us that you could have it, but we've never had the blueprint about how to achieve it in the right way because there's always the rules are always changing. Definitely, definitely. And I, I think broader America is starting to see 
which is part of the reason why why Trump was elected, right? Because there was there was a segment of the population who said, "This American dream is not happening for me," right? And there have been people since the founding of this country have been like, "No, this dream ain't happening for me," but. Since the canary in the coal mine done, done fell over about a hundred times and it's starting to affect everybody else, now, now all these crazy things are happening. Now all these anomalies are starting to pop up. And I think the younger people are feeling that burn where um, they may not make as much as their parents or right. they may not grow as much as their, as their parents. And they're like, well, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Right. And <clears throat> I think that's because... You know, generation after generation, we need to be focused on the things that are actually going to impact our lives in meaningful ways. When you have your elected politicians battling over things, playing word games and semantics that don't actually affect real people's like, how can you have a major political party in this country deny climate change? Like... How can you have a discourse between two people where one person says you're evil, you're completely racist, and then the other person says all you want are free things and all you want are handouts? We don't have a language to talk to one another honestly for the people who run the fundamental things that control our lives. And so as a young person growing up and seeing this, you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, There's such a disconnect between the levers of power and how they show up Mm -hmm. and the people who are affected that that continual disconnect is going to um it's it leaves people disillusioned and if the if the if the thinking isn't right i don't think we're going to focus on the right things and for me what the right things are that i think the young people people of color um you know people are trying to build themselves need to focus on is the things that move us as a society forward not only the social justice not only the education because we've been beating those drums forever Mm -hmm. i'm talking about property rights Mm -hmm. and owning land i'm talking about not growing up with the idea that you have to go work for somebody which is great because it's good to have a career and a job and those things are great but there are many among us who well why can't they own something why can't they own a factory Mm -hmm. you know we should be thinking about owning industry. Right. How do you own a power plant? The ink that you, that used to dye your shirt, like the raw materials and raw goods, owning those kinds of things, right. those things move the world forward, yeah. right? We have this newfound technology in, in the information age. How do we mine that in a way where we, we, are, we are moving our, our country, our world forward? We have that perspective that... I ha- I need to have an equity interest right in the things that right are are essential that are core mm-hmm. our food supply our energy supply our property at, at least the things that you use on a regular basis I I walked in I, it's funny so I live in Bloomfield <clears throat> and there's a plaza there's a shopping plaza that tends to there's a few shops that do well there's a Jamaican restaurant. Yeah, man. So, there, so, there, <laughs> so, there, so Bloomfield is a heavily. Is it a good Jamaican w- restaurant? I go there all. When I come oh, home, I stop there. It's my stop shop. Um, so, and, and Bloomfield is, is very heavily populated with West Indian culture. Uh, so there's West Indian spot. 
you know what I'm saying? And 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 then there's obviously you got your Chinese spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got your cleaners. And then there's like three other retail fronts that tend to struggle. I mean there's a liquor store of course. Uh, those those three entities remain. And then so there's a hair and beauty store that just opened up. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, "Oh, okay." Let me get some grease for my head. You know, I'm walking there and see what it looks like in here. For whatever reason, I thought it was going to be a black-owned business, black-owned business. And walked in, and uh, it wasn't. And I was like, man, okay, because I was ready to just, all right, boom, is, is this going to be my my hair care product store? And what kind of neighborhood is this? What's the demographics of this neighborhood? Bloomfield is probably... Man, it feels like it's about eighty percent black. Okay, but the number is probably maybe sixty-five, really, because okay. on on the, within the outskirts, you know, people tend to live upon the outskirts. But mostly, you'll see black black folks living in Bloomfield, okay. you know, middle class uh, suburb right outside of Hartford. Okay. Um, and and I just knew I just knew that I was black. I just knew somebody figured it out, like yeah. hair products, you know, and. And it wasn't. And I'm like, man, okay, how did this one get past us? And I think so. I, I think not having ownership in the things that we we use on a regular basis mm-hmm. is probably is is really bad. So and and I guess this is a pretty this is a good segue to kind of get into to your business, Connecticut Bartenders Academy. Mm-hmm. First of all, how old were you when you had your first drink? My first drink. <laughs> oh God. So. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a friend of the family give me a taste of Budweiser at seven. At seven, okay. <laughs> I tasted it, and my reaction was, "Yeah, this okay. is disgusting." Okay. Uh, so that was at seven, and then at um, you know, I guess at tw- on my twenty first birthday, I had a a blue motorcycle, uh, when I was on campus. Blue, I turned mo- blue motorcycle. Yeah, also known as a blue MF, or I keep it PG for your right. for your audience. We'll get back. To that. Uh, okay, cause but, I, uh, okay, that's a drink. Yes. Okay. Yes. I didn't know what that. I thought you meant a yeah. real motorcycle. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> okay. I'm like, <laughs> that, was, that was the name of the cocktail. Oh, okay. But I had, I had seen. Um, I don't know if this was weird for me. So I, th- th- so I was at a, I was at a, um, I was at this birthday party. It was a bar, a bar mitzvah when I was in high school. Man, those bar mitzvah, bar mitzvahs were off the hook. Oh yeah. They were the most fun ever yeah. you had. They have fun. I mean, it, it, it was they a blast. Make a lot of I loved it. I, I loved it. I had some great times. Uh, growing up and, 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 and going to those. But uh, there was this one in particular where one of the kids got a, um, one of my classmates got a bottle of beer and it was like maybe five or six guys around this one bottle of beer and they all took a hit. They're all excited about it and, you know, wound up and, you know. And I I saw that. I was like, no, I'm good. And I, I, I don't know if I felt weird about myself, but I was like, I have no desire to, like, when it comes to things that I have now deemed addictive, mm-hmm. right, and not making any moral judgments, I just have no desire to, to engage. And I, I had seen, um, you know, different people growing up mm-hmm. get affected seriously by alcohol. Mm-hmm. All right. I used to go to AA meetings, not for myself, mm-hmm. but with different, you know, friends of family. They would take me. And I think the reason that they took me to these meetings when I was younger was to say, hey, you know, anything you have in your life 
you know, addiction is real. It's a reality check. So as you live your life, be mindful of the things that you get into from a young kid. So when it comes to having my first drink, I was I didn't I didn't get like, you know, I didn't get hammered or sloshed yeah. when I was when I turned twenty one. I didn't I just the desire just wasn't even there. So so and we're gonna get back to that. So and and when I think back about and when we're talking about career choices and, mm-hmm. and ownership and I think back to the question that all the teachers asked kids when they were young. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then when you think back on that question, if you're asking a, a second grader, what do you want to be when you grow up? That kid only really has access to professions of which they have access to. Mm-hmm. So that could be a combination of their, their toys. So, they'll, so girls will be like, I want to be a princess. You know, or I want to be a nurse. And uh, ironically, in my case, I wanted I, the first one. The first thing I can remember that I wanted to be was a garbage garbage man, and I only wanted to be a garbage man because it looked like fun hanging off the back of the garbage <laughs> truck while I was driving. Now, ironically, no more garbage men hanging off the back of the truck. They got machines picking up your garbage now, with you know, on the side. So that that job doesn't even exist anymore, yeah. right? Even if I did want it, right? But but things change. So at seven, when you had that first drink, do you think that you were gonna own a bartending school? And and do you remember what you wanted to be when you were seven? Oh hell no! I didn't think about owning a bartending school. I just remember this this thing tastes nasty. Yeah. Um, do you remember what you wanted to be when I was seven? Yeah. So that was what, like second grade. Yeah, I think because I think six is first grade. Yeah. Um. So I I can I can trace it through my my early childhood. Uh, I think at around when I was really really younger, I wanted to be a firefighter for like a hot moment. Then I wanted to be an inventor because I was like that was cool. And then I think around the age of like I don't know like twelve thirteen, like I wanted to like own a university like a huge university. Own a university. Yeah. Like Trump University. Uh, hell no. <laughs> no, like like a real university. Okay. Yeah, cause cause. I, I don't know where this came from. My, a good friend of mine, Andrew, his father was very had a huge sense of self-awareness of being of African descent. My grandfather had a huge self-awareness of being of African descent. And so that was something that was planted in me from a very young age. So I was like, well, what's the key to, to overcoming anything? And it's to empowering your mind. So I think at around you know 12 or 13, that's what I wanted to do. And eventually, by the time I hit 18, it morphed into um, the best way to have social change for a group or one of one of the many pronged approaches to engaging in social change is to have economic power. So I was like, I want to be a business owner. I want to build equity. It's, it's good money in owning a university, though. That's they make they make a lot of money, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> shoot. If you can own a university, that's the way to go. That, that was I don't 13 year old Peter. They don't pay taxes. <laughs> I don't think they pay taxes. They get to raise the price every year, no matter what the economy is doing, and people still want to go. Uh, so, just take us through the story about how you came into becoming this business owner of the Bartenders Academy. So you're saying someone. Who really don't drink that much, and someone who like yeah help us pa- help us paint the picture of how you even ended up here like <laughs> your own business. And since I've been here, I've seen you f- take at least three calls, uh, 
about people who, you know, just wanting to take the class. So I'd be interested to learn, learn a little bit more about your clientele, what type of people like to sign up for the class. Uh, because I'm sure th this is one of those professions that people don't even know exist. So I, I guess I will start with, um, I'll, I'll share a little bit about me and I'll share a little bit about my clients and my customers and my graduates, my students. So the, I'll, I'll start backwards from that. So the people who take my class, the majority of them are seeking ways to increase their income. That's the major reason. The secondary reason is they want to do something fun while increasing their income. And, and, and kind of the, the, the thing that's running behind all of that is that you get compensated based on how good you are. Um, but that doesn't really come to the fore, the, the consciousness when people are thinking to sign up. They're just thinking, hey, I want to earn extra money. So me having been on the other side, having bartended, but also having traveled the country, meeting with some of the top bartenders from across the country, and they've done, you know, you know, done a little bit of studying or a lot of studying in the field. What you find is that those people who initially come into bartending just for the money, just like I did, because I, I I went to bartending school, you know, and and then you know I started bartending and started making a lot of money just bartending part time. What you find is that the craft of bartending it's so personal it's like it's like a thirsty person getting that drink of water after they've been you know out in the hot 90 degree sun for like hours and hours and the reason why is because we're social creatures mm -hmm. and so when you go to work you're in this artificial structured environment when you're in school you're in this regimented artificial structured environment when you go home um, to your spouse or your loved one or to by yourself you know, you're, you're deep, you're kind of deprogramming from this very regimented, artificial, structured and, and environment. Managing that environment, too. Exactly. <laughs> and then people, most of us have, you know, some kind of tape playing in our head about what we did that we're not good enough or, or what we messed up or how we could. We, we have our own tape playing in our head. And so what do people do on the weekends and evenings? They go out to unplug from all of that, to just chill and connect. It's one of the most human things you can do is to socialize. I mean, that's part of our defining characteristic of our species, right? And so as a bartender, uh, your, your number one job is to provide a hospitable environment for the patrons coming to unplug, right? And just connect with one another. And you're at the center of that. And what happens is people start giving you all this positive feedback right. because you're making that happen. Yeah. And you're like the, 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 uh, the barber or the hairdresser that everybody talks to. Exactly, exactly. Or even if they don't talk to you, they're just in your presence and you're serving them. And so you as the bartender, you get this constant positive affirmation. You get people constantly meeting you. You get this constant positive attention. You get this constant reward for the efforts of your work based on your tips. And so it's like a, con and, and when, when, when you serve people, no matter what venue, but uh, as long as it's not forced or controlled, but when you voluntarily serve people and ever like give community service or serve or take care of someone, it's personally edifying that builds you up. So what, in my position as a, as a trainer, an instructor, as a guide, as a mentor, as a teacher, as a coach, I see the transition from people just thinking, okay, I just need to make some extra money. Um, this would be a cool way to do it.
to actually being in the profession and seeing them enjoying the experience of being social and interacting in a way that you get to kind of fill your soul with that human touch, that human interaction. Um, that's when, for me, it clicks for them. That's when the magic happens, when they're like, wow, I really enjoy this this environment of being able to connect with other people. So um, that's what I, I see that transformation in my students. And that's only part of, that's the most important part of the equation. The other part of the equation that's, equation that's super cool is that bartending is actual craft that you can study and get better at. So there's also the other part where people get excited because they get to be an artist, they get to create. So um, my, as for my clients, my students, the people I coach, there's people looking to add some extra income, but you know my job is served and done once they've gotten turned on in a part of their life that they may not have been turned on in before. So how did you even get into th this business? So I um, uh, I started Bartender's Academy at 25, and at eight. By the time I'd hit 18, between 16 and 18, I knew I wanted to be a business owner. Okay. So basically a, a seven to nine year process of, you know. And did you go to school for, did you study business in school? Man. What was your major? I, w I went to school. My head was in the clouds, man. <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, I started off with business and international relations. But yeah. I actually. How many times did you switch your major? Like three, four times. Yeah, okay. But but you, you know, and I both. Truth be told, I ended where my heart was. I ended with a, a degree in African studies. Okay. And I always remind people, it's not African American studies. It's African studies. My family's from Jamaica. I was born and raised in 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 New York. Um, you know, uh, but I got a degree in African studies, and that's where, that's where my heart truly lies. And you went to school at UNC Chapel, Chapel Hill. Hill, Tar Heels, yeah. all the way. Sweet Carolina Blue, baby. Um, yeah, so I ended up with a degree in African studies. Uh, ended up spending a semester abroad in, in South Africa. It was my second time in Southern Africa. I went when I was in, uh, in high school, too. Uh, and so by the during that time, when I got out of school, uh, I went into commercial real estate because I wanted to know, you know, business owners and yeah. who, who controls the most valuable property. Yep. From there, I went on to a consulting startup because um, I wanted to know how a startup ran. And then from there, um, I had met someone in my professional career who was an investor. Uh, and I told him I wanted to own a business one day. And, you know, I'd gone to bartending school to help my, pay my way after once those college loans kicked in. Right. Went to bartending school, you know, and, and started. If you hadn't shared that with him, that you had the desire to be a business owner, would that connection even happen? Would he have sought you out? Did you have that relationship where he asked you, or did you just come to him and just say, "Hey, look, I know you have resources"? Or how did I find this business owner? Or, or just how did was I, I guess what I'm trying to, to say because you said that you had a conversation with him. You told him that you wanted to be a business owner. Yeah. How was that relationship? In order for you, was that a strong relationship? In order for you to even share that with him? Or oh yeah, because, just, yeah, because <clears throat> I met him. At my first company that I worked at, and he was a investor, very wise investor, 
and we'd always talk shop and talk business and I just I, I don't know what business I want to start I just know I want to start a business mm-hmm. and that relationship eventually when I left that company went on to my next company and we're talking about different business opportunities something came up and he was like if you want to do this you know I'll back you so I was very fortunate in that time but I was ready for it right so you so you you had cultivated a relationship yeah which is important over time I didn't just come and ask him and say hey right. give me money like He's someone that I had met and known over time. And the only reason I met him is because I was in, in an environment to meet him. Which was what? The, being in, be, being a commercial real estate broker. Like, you meet most people in real estate as a commercial real estate person. The first question I ask you, what houses do you sell? And I'm like, no, I'm in commercial real estate. We're talking about buildings, industrial spaces, retail spaces, flex use, like developments that, like, we're talking about business. We're talking about industry. The guys that own the restaurants that you eat in, the people that own the, the stores the, that you shop in, and the, yeah, exactly, the, yeah. And, and and the people who they pay rent, right? To. The people that they pay rent to, if they don't own the building, exactly. Yep. So, um, you know, one famous story I always tell people about being in commercial real estate is when I'm, you know, growing up in New York, especially if you're in the city, a lot of people don't look up. But then, the, what's beautiful about New York is that a lot of people do look up and see these beautiful buildings. So when you're walking down the street now, you got a you got a small group of people who are now looking up at the tall buildings, right? Now amongst those people, a lot of people don't ask themselves, well, who owns this property? When they're walking by these skyscrapers, right? So that's a whole other category of folks are saying, wow, well, who owns this property, right? Now amongst that group, who asks themselves, well, how could I own this stuff? It's so hard, but see, you, you know, you, you, when you start looking at that stuff, it. it it's so overwhelming mm-hmm. because the architecture, I mean, first of all, if you think about what it takes to build something like that, mm-hmm. and then you, you can't even imagine somebody owning that because you, you wouldn't even understand, you wouldn't even know, to, you could throw out a number of how much you thought it cost to build and you'd be wrong. You yeah. wouldn't even know what's high and what's or what's low Yeah, and because you're talking millions, yeah. hundreds of millions, and you wouldn't know what's high, what's low, and we're so uncomfortable even talking in those numbers, you know? So... I understand completely what you're saying, yeah. uh, but but no, but but continue. I'm sorry, it's, but yeah, no, 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 definitely. And so, you know, being in commercial real estate, because I think a lot of question people had is how do you find an investor, right? Uh, and in many ways, I, I lucked out, but in many ways, I was in the environment. So being being someone who would walk down the street and say, well, who owns these buildings? And as I came to learn later on, what group or organizations or businesses or companies own these buildings and who runs and owns those companies, right? I, I was in an environment in commercial real estate where I say, okay, we're dealing with ownership. And when you're dealing with ownership, you're dealing with equity. And just being in that environment, it set me up to meet someone who was involved in ownership and equity. Uh, and that's really what kind of set me up. And so he initially gave me um, you know, some backing to go out. So I quit my job in DC I was at a consulting firm. I was about to get a promotion. It was like a day or two before I was about to get a promotion. I quit my job. I drove up to Waterbury, Connecticut. Didn't even, I'd never lived in Connecticut. Probably just driven through the state and never heard of Waterbury. Ended up in Waterbury owning a bartending school at 25 as a young black dude who, you know, went to UNC um, and, you know, of Jamaican descent. And a neighborhood where a lot of people didn't look like me, but everybody was cool. And I had something of value for them um, in a field with someone who's not a big drinker, 
right? So all these things were weird. I even <laughs> I, I should show you. I had this one woman come in with her daughter, and she's like, "You're a fraud," because she just didn't believe my story. Mm. And she put down Waterbury too, and I, I I wrote back a very nice email to her, talking about the hardworking people in Waterbury that she should go visit and sit down with, and you know, like th- that's a whole nother story. Uh, yeah. But um, I, 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 I had to educate her a little bit on, on you know, dissing uh, working class America. And you, you have to remember now, I grew up in New York City. I, I lived in D.C. Like, and I'm going to working class America, like small t- working class, small town America. So this was a culture shock for me. It took me three or four years in to adjust. And, and most people don't identify Connecticut as an industrial Historically, an industrial state. Yeah. A lot of old mill buildings, these brass manufacturing, component manufacturing, and all that. So yeah. Yeah. So like it was, it was a huge culture shock for me. But I ended up here. I landed in Waterbury, met some good, hardworking people, and, and had a lot of people that wanted to bartend. And that transit. So and when you decided to, to pursue this, there was a catalyst that when you were at the consulting company, and you said, oh. you said, <laughs> the last. Thing. You said, yeah. was it your manager? So, um, <clears throat> the people who ran this consulting company, uh, these dudes were super smart, super progressive, super hungry. Um, my direct manager, sales guy, um, Ro, uh, you know, HBS grad, he was super, you know, he, he was like a sales guy through and through, awesome dude. Um, you know, the company was growing, growing. They were raising money, getting rounds of funding in. It, w- it was cool. And then they brought on this like director of commercial operations to oversee like the sales team and the account management team. Now I'd been talking with the owners before I've been talking about direct supervisors. They were going to transition me, give me a promotion. So this was in the works. So I'm there with my colleague who also went to uh, UNC go heels. Right. And we're in a, a, a three person meeting talking about like kind of the direction of the company. And, um, Somehow, I don't know how it gets to like what we want or where we want to see things go, but I was referencing the fact that I was on a track to, to get a promotion. And in front of my colleague, she tried to silence me. I'm like, that's nice, Peter, but you kind of need to calm down and wait your turn. And I was like, you going to sit down and try and um, simmer me down? I got one for you. And that was it for you. So that same day, I called my investor buddy, investor dude, and was like, hey, you know that opportunity you mentioned the other day? Let's do it. Within two weeks, I was on a plane to visit Waterbury, Connecticut, where I'd never been to. And I came back the next day. We Within 30 days, we had an offer out. The deal closed. And I tendered my resignation. Just like that. Somebody had got disrespectful. You said, I'm show you. Well, hey, (laughs) the feeling was, how is this person going to tell me as an adult, I was a young adult, but still as an adult, that I need to, um, that, that they have this command over me and I need to check myself. I'm like, who are you to talk to me this and who are you to have this kind of power influence of you don't now the actual owners of the company i love those dudes they were, they were great guys they, you know they never came at me like that but this person um had the like how, how are they gonna come at me like that right yeah. and um i was like all right cool i'm gonna be running my ship so i'm gonna set sail right 
So an- another important component <clears throat> of, of just how you even got here was you said the networking and building the relationship mm-hmm. and, and just being prepared for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Were you always comfortable networking growing up or is that something that you had to learn? Uh, I just had a philosophy. You go in a room, you meet everybody there. So every job I had, I just go. I don't care if you're like the president or the secretary or the janitor or the food person or the, the, the bellboy or like a co-worker. I'll go up to you and I'll just ask you who you are. What do you do here? Like, can I get to know you? What are your keys to being successful here? And, and, and as a young person, I did that a lot. And so that was natural. That was a natural trait, personality trait of yours. Or is that something that you saw someone else close to you? do or is that something that someone else said peter you have to you have to go up and just ask questions because i never asked questions as a kid i was a shy kid i was quiet i i did most of my learning through observation Mm -hmm. um and i was just never i was always inquisitive but i was never brave enough to really kind of ask i was like all right you know i I got as much as i could from the observation and, and that's that so is that something that you always it seems like you you were you had that that's just uh, a personality trait of yours. So I'm a big believer in nurture, um, and nature plays a, lo- a large, like I believe in nature and nurture together. So I'm a huge proponent of nurture, right? I forget it was it was Kobe. Uh, no, I think it was um, Will Smith that always said, "No matter how much talent you have, it only gets you so far. It's it's the hard work, the dedication, the persistence, the nurture that'll get you where you want to be." So for me, I don't really know the answer to that question, but I do know. That as a as a young person as I was growing up, I, I tried to take in information from as many sources as possible, even if it went against my own natural disposition. So um, for me, I like speaking in front of lots of people, and for that supposedly that's the number one public fear, right? Mm-hmm. But I consider myself very much an introvert, mm-hmm. and people are like, well, how the hell does that work? Well, for me, it was a skill learned to if you have an objective. You need to do what you need to do to get to that objective. So even though considering myself an introvert, if I had a message to get out or to understand or I need to communicate something, it means I need to take certain steps. So if that step requires me to speak to a lot of people or speak to someone one-on-one, I think that became part of a formula, whether it was innate or I picked it up. I'm I'm willing to assume that it was amalgamation of just learning and, and kind of putting things together that said, hey, this is your formula. Go up to people, figure out what they're about, uh, see if you can add value, and see what wisdom or nuggets they have to share with you, and keep it moving. So you got the investment. Um, the owner, the investor, is he, does he still have a stake? Does he still have an equity position in the company? No, he was like he was truly the definition of an angel investor. About five years ago, he was like, "All right, like you, you got what you need to get done, done." And, and so he was like, "You know, have fun with the rest of the company." Wow. Yeah, and we separated on, on amazing terms, wow. really great terms. And he was like, now go be successful. Still in touch with him? Yeah, every now and then we, we, we touch base, yeah. We haven't, we haven't spoken in a while. I, I, I got to give him a ring, but yeah, every now and then we touch base. He's, uh, he said a lot of things early in my business career that I didn't listen to, and he ended up being right. What were some of those things? One example is don't expand too fast. He was like, if you have a project that you're working on, a business project, you have to have the discernment, which may come with experience, but you have to understand when it's important to grow and when it's important to grow what you have. And so um, I expanded Bartender's Academy to two locations when I should have focused on really perfecting and getting that 
that initial organization, that first location down. And I didn't listen to him because I was like, hey, there's more opportunity here. And he was like, listen, before you expand and spread yourself too thin, make sure you get your systems in place, your financial controls in place, your hiring practices in place, your manual in place. If you want to run a mom and pop, fine. And there's nothing wrong with running a mom and pop. But if you want to have a business that you can one day sell or grow or use to raise funds, it needs to operate in a very specific set of ways with controls and systems in place, with your sales systems in place, your marketing systems in place. And the company was surviving off of my sheer will and the efforts of my teammates who would come in and work super, super hard, right? Which was commendable on the part of my, my teammates and the people I hired, was commendable on, upon me and the energy I put forth. But you, in working hard is great and it's necessary, but you need to do it in a smart way. I always say that, you know, I love trees, so don't cut down any trees. But if you were going to cut down a tree, right, you can use an axe and spend the next, you know, uh, several months trying to cut down this tree, which would be hard work. Yeah. Or you could work hard at your job, save some money, buy a chainsaw and chop that sucker down and like, you know, in an hour and get it done. So. You, you got to work hard, but you got to apply that hard work in the right way. And for me, I was applying hard work by using willpower to run the business, by hiring people and asking so much of them to put into that business instead of doing the hard work of sitting down and writing the operations manuals and writing down the plans and getting the bookkeeper line to make sure my financials are, you know, super on point. Do, doing the mundane, the boring, the non-glitzy stuff and owning that process and really driving into that to really create a true business. And so that's one of the lessons that he shared with me that, you know, um, you know, that it, it's taken me time to get to a place where I'm now finally in a place where those things are starting to happen. And how long have you had the business? How long is that my been? eight year anniversary? Eight years. Yeah. I was supposed to be out in three. You're supposed <laughs> to sell it in three? Yeah, I was supposed to have my, 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 my millions in three years and, and, and be out and have left the impact on our industry and be the great, you know, grandmaster of fostering new talent. So you actually started 2008? Oh, nine. During the bottom. For my business, that's not a bad but, thing. And that's the thing. I, that's exactly it because liquor does not experience a recession. It's one within, the, within a reason, yeah. So it one of it's one of the most it's one of the commodities that does not really it actually sees an increase during recessions, mm -hmm. liquor sales. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's actually fascinating when when you actually took over the business and you're still here eight years later. So mm -hmm. that's something to be said about that. So so takeaways from what you've learned, pros, cons, challenges. Um, what are some of the pr principles right now based on past eight years is there anything that that you've figured out works for you and could possibly work for others so a few things um i listen to this guy john lee dumas um and uh, he often says focus and he breaks that down into follow one course until success f-o-c-u-s follow one course until success focus and so that's one thing um, that has been 
I've, I've seen the power of putting my talents and my energies in one direction. When it gets split into 50 million different places, it doesn't work. That's one big thing that I, I, I've seen. The other big thing that I've seen, watch who you spend your time with. Mm. Because if the people around you are draining your energy or dragging on you, you're not going to be your best self. That's one. That's another lesson. I mean, I can, I can keep going, man. It's um, excuses. Like, times have gotten so tough at different points through owning a business. People see all the, the students coming in. They're like, oh, you're making this money. They don't see the money going out. They don't right. see the bills that are old, right? Um, you know, when you, when, you, when, you, when you have a child, right? And it kind of, I think every parent can relate to this. You know, it changes your whole, your, um, your, your, your whole framework, right? The, the thing that I've learned about excuses are um, there are things that are your fault and there are things that are outside of your control. There are things that are, in, that w- are within your control and things that are without your control. And if you don't take responsibility for the things that are in your, your control, you're a joke. Like, if you can do certain things, you need, like, you need to woman up, you need to man up, you need to do it, right? The thing that I learned, though, that was crazy, that was super crazy, is when things are outside of your control, you are still responsible to do what you have to do. And that has been the biggest lesson. Because the world happens. Exactly. You still have to live in it. Exactly. So if you get knocked down, not to be cliche, it is still your responsibility to get up. So everybody can, everybody can <laughs> right. be like, right. okay, you screwed up. All right, fix it. Everybody gets that, right? Everybody will be like, oh, so yeah, the, the market shifted and you're, you went out of business or um, you know, something happened in, in the market or something happened with you personally that was outside of your control. Oh, you know, come cry on my shoulder. I understand. That's so bad. That sucks, you know. Oh, I understand. Oh, you, have a, you had a child. Oh yeah, that takes over your life. Yeah, so you gotta you gotta put everything on hold. Yeah, no, I understand that. That's garbage, man. Like, you still have to produce, even when it's extremely hard. Even when think when life is unfair to you, for whatever reason, you still have to come and produce if something bad happens. If you if there, if there's a loss of a loved one, if there's um. You know, the, the economy turns, if, if your customer base shifts, if you didn't learn something and you've been trying your best and that just wasn't in your basket of knowledge and because of that missing basket of knowledge, something didn't work out, um, whatever it is, you are still responsible for the end result because no one cares that's true. other than that's, results. Nah, that's true. No one, not too many people care. You know what I'm saying? Not too many people care. And uh, yeah, I'm... I'm gonna wrap this up because uh, it's getting late. So I, I appreciate your time, man. Oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just getting around. Oh, I, I, I know I gotta get you home, man. <laughs> and I, you know, I I need to learn how to make one of these drinks out here. If, you know, on uh, yeah. you got any uh, was it free tutorials or or, or free samples or, or I don't know what they call them? So free trials. So, so shameless plug. Uh, and, uh, and I was gonna say, you know, <laughs> how can people get in contact with you? Website, Instagram, Facebook. All the social medias, man. Give it up. So take some time. If you're looking to, you know, add some some fun to your life, add some extra income to your life, visit bartendersacademy.com. 
bartendersacademy.com. You can find us on Instagram, hashtag at bartendersacademy. You can find us on Facebook. Check out the reviews, facebook.com slash bartendersacademy. On Twitter at CT Bar School. Uh, come check us out. Uh, we would love to train you and help you become a bartender. So that, 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 that's all my plug right there. And you have two locations. Uh, I have, um, so let's talk about the two locations real quick. So I train bartenders here in Fairfield. Uh, and so that, that's our main base of operation. Fairfield, Connecticut. Yeah, I'm Fairfield, in Connecticut today. Yeah, so we are in Connecticut. And then I've also partnered with Diageo in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, for people who may be on food stamps or Section 8, victims of domestic violence, um, you know, uh, uh, homeless uh, folks who have experienced severe homelessness, have been on the edge of life, but have a super interest in bartending. We actually have a scholarship through um, Diageo North America uh, where we we provide uh, training in Norwalk. So those are the, the two programs that we run. And when you finish the course, you finish with a certification? Yeah, so we have a few different course options, but our, our, our main programs, you finish with a certification knowing how to bartend. You finish with a certification for serving bartending responsibly because you are legally responsible for distributing this legalized drug we call alcohol. Um, so remember, if you're serving drinks responsibly, and this is a uh, message to you out there, if you have a friend or someone you know who drinks a lot, just take the keys. It's not worth it. Um, you know, if you're responsible in your drinking, you can live to have fun another day. Um, I actually lost one of my students to, to intoxicated uh, driving, driving while intoxicated. They were, they were intoxicated. They were intoxicated. And that was before. It was crazy because I think the next day we were, to, we were about to talk about responsible drinking and, like, service. And, you know, we, we lost one of our students, unfortunately. Right. And that's one of the, uh, the courses that you do have to take. Yes. That's part of our training. Yeah. Training. And so, so we started off the conversation talking about Bethune Cookman yeah. and, and the graduates there. Yes. Um, and you went to UNC Chapel Hill. Tar Heels all day long, baby. I graduated from Temple University in Philly. All right now. Um, Love the city of Philadelphia. What what kind of words of wisdom can we give the seniors' class uh, graduating from high school, going into college right now? From high school to college. From high school to college. I have I have a few things Go to ahead. say about that. Sound off, man. <laughs> All right, Sound let's off. run down the list. <laughs> study abroad. You need to study abroad. Live outside of this country, please. Yep. Definitely do it. That's one thing. Um, have your core friends, but be a floater, right? This is gonna sound crazy, and a lot of people are gonna disagree with me on this one. Um, but do your homework. Mm-hmm. And this is why you want to do your homework because when you get out into the real world. And there's no teacher telling you what you need to study. The difference between those who are great and successful and those who are not are those who've learned how they learn. And in their chosen field of study or their field of or their or their chosen vocation, their chosen job that they have at the moment, if they know how to do their own self-guided homework within a year, you can be more knowledgeable than people have been at that job for maybe, you know, five years, even 10 years. The, the ability to self-teach and self-learn is highly undervalued. So learn that in college. And then the other thing I would tell you, no matter what profession you want to go in, learn about how our world works. Learn about our banking and financing system. 
learn how money works. There's no course we get in high school or elementary school that teaches us where our money comes from and how it works. And so if you're going to be a journalist, a writer, a teacher, a police officer, whatever, know how money works. Study banking. It may sound boring, but it's a lot more exciting than you realize. Study that and, you know, look into, you know, how you can get into real estate and ownership. Because no matter what profession you have, you need to set yourself up. And college is a great four, two to four years. I encourage you to go to four years if you can. But it's, it's a great time to really study and focus and, and, and build up. So when you come out, you have your ducks in a row. This is another thing for you high school or college graduates. People will give you their time and they will give you your wisdom before you graduate and get that degree. So you can go up to the CEO of any company, the president of any company, and she will give you your time if you're smart about it. You can talk to authors, people in government. They're more willing to give you your time then as opposed to after you get out. So mm -hmm. use that to your advantage. Your degree, a lot of people now don't like me for this. Um, so many people change their majors mm -hmm. and do something not related to what they're studying. It's okay. Don't feel pressured to know exactly what you're gonna study. Like it's it's I. <laughs> but I would I will say because that was one of my things was that a lot of us go into school not knowing what majors are out there, um, having an assumption of what we're having an idea of what major we think we want to major in, and then not knowing what that major what it takes to complete the the focus, or how it pays afterwards. And so you end up switching majors like three and four times. And it costs too much right now to go in uninformed, especially with the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, there are more tools at your disposal today than there ever was. And so, and, and that's one of the things that my father says now, the problem, the problem with millennials and, and the senior generation is that there are no more secrets. Before, you know, grown folks could close the door and you could say, you could talk about stuff and kids wouldn't know they'd have to go through it. Now, Kids just get on Google. You got videos. You can practically go through college, you know, by watching YouTube channels. You can learn all the, all of these all all of the, all of this information is is available to you. So, including free money and scholarships, and that, and then I would say if, if you find a teacher that suits your learning style, follow that teacher as much as you can, mm. uh, because that will make life a little bit easier. The other thing was study groups. Study groups, study groups, find a study group. Just study with other people. I tried to study by myself. Every time I studied with a group, I did exponentially better. And it, it never felt like we were studying. We were just, like you said, it was a social construct where I, I would say I began to associate certain chapters and principles that we were learning with something that went on during the study session or if it was a joke or some, the way that somebody got it wrong so i would i would say i'm a big proponent of, of study groups and bring your books everywhere because you never know when you're gonna be waiting somewhere on somebody or something you could just read a chapter or something i have another one go ahead this is for the young men out there uh -oh. so brothers this is a time where you're going to be raging with all <laughs> kinds of horny moans. My goodness. Channel your energy wisely. I'm not saying, you know, if you, if, you know, you're, you're, you're over 18, you're a consenting adult now. Channel, 
channel your energy wisely. Um, it is very easy to get caught up in the thrill and the chase and what may seem like an endless buffet. But at the end of the day, if you're disservicing someone else's soul, you're, you're, you're disservicing yourself. First of all, wrap it up. <laughs> Please wrap it up. You don't want to catch STDs of the babies. I know it sounds like a broken record, but I'm here to encourage you. Wrap it up if you choose to in, in, engage in sexual uh, conduct. The other thing is, with these young women in college that you are going to meet, and there are going to be many of them, you cannot pressure these women. You can't convince them. You can't do any of that. The best way you can attract a smart, bright, young, intelligent woman is to be smart, young, and bright and do good work. Your good work could be with volunteering. It could be doing well in school. It could be running an organization. Use that to attract. Use that as your method of chasing. But don't be alone with some of these young sisters who you know have, have gone through so much just to get to where they are and sometimes carrying twice the weight that you are and defile them by forcing them or coercing them. When, when you get into that moment when, you, when you're with somebody, stop, think, and be like, am I trying to push this person in a direction they don't want to go? You, you got to think about how, how you can affect people in your life. I know so many women to this day probably one out of the four women that I know, and I know a lot of people who've been negatively affected by sexual assault, sexual violence, and we've been talking a lot about liquor and alcohol today. It is not cool to get someone all pumped up and, and excited because she had a few drinks in her and think, all right, now we're about, we about to have fun, right? This is a time to learn. This is a time to explore. This is, you know, you're going to have a little fun. That's cool too, but everything has to be consensual. And everything has to be forthright and forthcoming with whatever you do. So, um, you know, some of you cats out there are super spiritually based. That's awesome, right? Make sure you're not sacrilegious to yourself or someone else. For others of you, you know, you're just trying to, you know, do your thing and get through school. I just want, I just, I can't say this enough. Like, look out for our sisters out there and, and, and be smart about your actions. Um, my kindergarten teacher, Ms. Cole, always used to say, listen and think you always have an option if you're around a group of guys that are with a group of girls if it, if it's four guys and four girls and the you know the three of the guys are all into it and and three of those girls are all into it but there's one there that she seems uncomfortable or she seems like she just doesn't want to be there man up step up and say hey yo sweetheart we're just going to talk we're just going to have fun no matter what's happening around the world you want to just talk why don't you know why, why don't we keep it low so that's a yeah that's a message no, i want to share to the young a, brothers out there and that's a great way to go out man great way to go out so i mean I, again peter clayton this is my man i appreciate Aaron you smith man i appreciate you uh doing it <laughs> this is the co-op and you know one of the things that uh i just want to do with this this project is to highlight you know successful businesses uh different experiences so we all can learn and, and just promote collaboration and uh, a cohesion and a, just a collaborative uh, space for thoughts and, and a place for people to learn so on that note we are going to say good night and uh, we'll get with everyone next time Aaron Smith it's the co-op Peter Clayton in the house watch Hinders Academy look them up <laughs>